You're listening to a recording of a live radio show on NPR News. If you want to listen to us in real time, you can stream our show live weekdays at 9 a.m. Central. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Good morning. I'm Carrie Miller, and this is NPR News. Coming up, The Five with Steph Curtis, what you should read, watch, and listen to. But first, our newest conversation in our Women of Faith series. This spring and summer, I'm in conversation with women who are wrestling with some of the most urgent philosophical and spiritual issues of the day. Here's Rabbi Donya Ruttenberg with some powerful insight on the complexity of repentance. The word in Hebrew that we use to talk about the work of repentance, and it is work, is tshuva, which means literally returning. So it's about returning back to that place that you need to be, where you should have been all along, maybe, and that you need to come back and that there's some work to do to get back to that place. Oh, yeah, I really hope you've had time to listen to that episode. The, uh, here's Reverend Ashley Easter from last week on how the Southern Baptists have to bring more accountability in their leadership on the scourge of sexual abuse. A lot of times churches are more concerned about the reputation. They're more concerned about keeping the tithe money flowing. They're more concerned about looking a certain way to the community. And unfortunately, some churches, many churches, in fact, are willing to sacrifice victims and vulnerable people on the altar of their image. The whole series is collected on one page and in a podcast stream. Just search. It's easy to get to. Search NPR News with Carrie Miller and Women of Faith. Okay, today, how stepping into a thorny conversation in a very polarized world can be an act of faith. As my guests who practice this all the time join us, I want to hear from you this morning. When was the last time that you found the patience or the humility to truly listen to someone who doesn't share your political views? When you honored them with your attention, have you given up on that? Are you trying to practice it? How's it going? So you know that this is kind of a different version of these many conversations that we've had about better angels and other approaches to this. Today, we're coming at this from a spiritual point of view. And I'd like to know when the last time was that you found that kind of patience, that receptivity to engage in a conversation, listening being a key part of that, with someone who doesn't share your political views when you honored them with your attention. And I wonder if you've just reached a place where you've given up on it. Are you trying to practice it? How's it going? 651-227-6800-242-2828 and on Twitter at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R. Our guest today, Sarah Stewart Holland, worked on Capitol Hill in Washington. She served on her hometown city commission. She is the co-host of the Pantsuit Politics podcast, and she's with us today from Paducah, Kentucky. And Sarah, welcome to the show. It's good to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. Beth Silvers is with us. She's an attorney and a business coach and the other co-host of Pantsuit Politics. And together, they authored the book, I Think You're Wrong, But I'm Listening. So this is why I said they are practicing this all the time. And she's with us from Cincinnati. And Beth, welcome to you. Good to have you on the show. Good morning, Carrie. Thanks for having me. So, Beth, we, as you could hear, we talk about active and receptive listening in a lot of different ways and quite often on this show. And I want to talk about the characteristics of that in a minute and how you and Sarah practice it. But what often happens in these conversations is there are 
quite a few people who think it is a betrayal to give time and attention to public opinion that diverges from theirs, whether it is, you know, in listening to a show with a voice that they don't agree with or whether it's in a private conversation with somebody in your family, that it betrays some kind of core conviction to their principles. And I want to know how you handle that. I think that the reason we feel that way is because of our conceptions about time. We have so little time that we expect every story to be the full story and every conversation we listen to to be the full conversation. And when you change your perspective on time and you think there is enough time to hear all of these views, there is enough time for me to process them and then respond thoughtfully, you're more open to listening to people with whom you disagree, knowing I don't have to, in the 10 minutes I have for this conversation, rebut everything I hear that I don't agree with. Mm. I can with this and think about it a little while and come back and have another conversation where I'm heard. So when you can step back a little bit from believing that everything must be solved immediately, I think you find a lot more space for honoring the people that you're listening to, as you described so well at the beginning of the show. You know, Sarah, that makes a lot of sense. And what that does is remove the, I have to win this. I have to win because, you know, this is my cause. And every time I get into a discussion about whatever this is, I have to defend the cause. That kind of removes that element from it, doesn't it? Right. I mean, we have made the stakes of every political conversation so high. And what we really encourage people to do is to pull back and to prioritize the relationship with the other person. If you're prioritizing the relationship, like Beth said, you're not trying to solve everything in one conversation. We're always telling people it's a long game here. This is a long (laughs) game we're all playing together as Americans. And we're not trying to come up with draft legislation or win every single conversation. (laughs) Uh We're trying to prioritize the relationship with this person. Now, I want to say this because I I think this is important to know. You two have a history in which trust was built long ago when you were both in college at a very formative time in your lives. And that is, I think that's really important to note here, Sarah, about your relationship and how you two were able to to practice this kind of generous and receptive listening. You trust Beth. You know her. Well, it's really interesting. We had not seen each other in person in 13 years when we started recording the podcast. We really didn't have a deep relationship. We did know each other in college. We were sorority sisters, but we weren't particularly close in college. We had very different college experiences. And so we were gentle with each other. I didn't want to offend her or make her mad. I was trying to build a relationship with her. And I think I came not with a relationship already in place where there was a lot of trust, but where I wanted to build one where trust could be built. And I think that shifted the tenor of our conversations. And now, over three and a half years of sitting down and talking politics, we are very dear friends. And we have built a massive amount of trust between one another. But to look at somebody and say, hey, I sat down with this person I didn't know very well, and we started talking about politics, and now we're really close friends because of that, <laughs> is it sounds insane to people. It does, kind of. Let me grab a call here from Mary in Mankato. Mary, it sounds like you've practiced this and had some success. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. It's um, I, I've always loved politics, and I'm you know, a very, I guess, strong Catholic woman, too, and I've been really involved in the pro-life movement in mm-hmm. Mankato mm-hmm. for the last four years, and pretty much all my life, but a week or for the last four years, and this has kind of started happening with Alabama, um, you know, like my... 
I started to try and interact with people a little bit more on social media and have been met with various levels of I guess, and <laughs> kind of testing the waters and, and learning from the experience, so... So you, you've been doing this on social media, Mary, with, with people who do not feel the same as you do about, yeah. oh, my gosh, a very polarizing issue, and that's abortion. But it's gone OK. Is that right? Yeah, it has. Yeah. And I wow. think, um, well, I know a lot of people, being a musician, um, being in the arts, you know, I, um, I, I know a lot of different people who have different opinions, and I think you know, playing violin in the orchestra, you, you have to learn to um, um, make music with people who are different from you. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that has helped a little bit, but I... Oh, shoot. Mary, you're... Talking and hear, hearing where people are from and, you know, what, why they believe what they believe. And I think I've been able to do that respectfully. And I think it... More power to you. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. especially, Beth, that, that Mary's doing this on social media, because I, I want to talk to you, too, about how social media is so distorting on this. But her overall point, Beth, what do you take from that? Well, I think that's really encouraging, and I applaud Mary for her patience. And I think that we can have really interesting conversations around the issue of abortion reproductive freedoms because they get to our fundamental humanity. They cut right to the heart of our values, and I think that's why we struggle with them as a nation. Our willingness to struggle with them in our sphere of influence is massively important. And I think when you interact on Facebook or Twitter, if you're doing that from a place of relationship, I know these people, I want to make music with them, as she so eloquently said, then you can have really amazing conversations. I think it's kind of lazy the way we dismiss social media as just this toxic soup. It can be, but it doesn't have to be. And we can really contribute to making it something better. Uh, Although I think what Rob is saying here on Twitter, um, I think he's getting at something. He says, I find people whom I disagree Meeting with them face to face is much easier than social media or mediated interactions. There's an element of facial expression, body language, humor and listening that warms you to different views. Sarah, I hear you. You agreeing with this. Yeah, I really agree. And I I think the issue of abortion is such an interesting example, because what we found in our own conversation, including one of our most popular shows with a pro a woman who described herself as a pro-life feminist, is that. People just want some space to say, I'm not in one camp or the other, and I'm trying to figure it out, especially on abortion. When we say, hey, we're not 100 percent sure how we feel about this, and there are some issues of this particular um, controversy that we feel are gray or we don't know or we see both sides as having valid arguments, you can feel a physical release from people. So when we don't stake out that those two binary positions and we allow some grace for each other to say, I don't know, or honestly, I haven't figured that out yet, Um, especially when we're in person and we can see that sort of, oh, okay, so that's not what this conversation is not. It's not going to be a battle royale. Okay, I feel so much better. Maggie says on Twitter, I try, I try so hard, but as I listen, I can literally feel my heart racing and my body shaking. Mm -hmm. It's visceral and I don't know how to get my physical body to stay calm. I mean, Maggie's in the, kind of that uh, fear or flight space there, right? I know this could be difficult. And your body starts to say, OK, prepare for uh, for the moment that this is going to be really difficult. Beth and Sarah, how do you how do you manage all of that, too, including the physical uncomfortability? Because 
you guys have the chapter in your book, which is like, prepare to be uncomfortable. There's nothing wrong with that. So how do you do it? Well, kudos to Maggie for knowing that that's happening in her body, because I think that's the mm-hmm. first step, just being aware of what's going on. And so many of us jump in these conversations without even knowing that we're having this really emotional reaction. So when we talk about being comfortable with being uncomfortable, we've learned a lot about this from yoga. Like you do first just need to know what's happening, be able to describe it. And then I think the best thing in these discussions is to to say that out loud hey, I'm feeling my blood pressure climbing as we're talking. I probably need to take a little break. Or I'm wondering why I'm reacting so strongly and what's occurring to me is this thing that I've never articulated before. It's okay for us to be elevated in blood pressure. This stuff is important. It matters. Nothing that we're saying about being calm in these discussions means that we shouldn't get heated sometimes too because this is really important stuff. We are in relationship with each other, and those relationships should start with standing that pressure. If we can do this about politics, we're going to have better relationships on a variety of subjects. So first, notice it. Second, label it. Third, express that to the other person. And then fourth, decide together what you want to do. You don't have to finish the conversation in that state if you need a break. You know, as I listen to the way you two talk about this, it it occurs to me that you have become very good at removing the sanctimoniousness, the, the sense of superiority. If you only knew what you were talking about, you would clearly see my mm-hmm. side. Or it feels so good to judge someone else that I am never going to climb off my superior soapbox. Did you two, I mean, how do you, when you're talking about this just between yourselves and not even on the podcast, how do you make sure you're practicing that, Beth? Well, I love that you that you called that out because I don't know that that's always been true for us. I think I've certainly had to learn that. And part of it is that we just do it all the time. And when you're constantly in conversation with someone you respect as much as I respect Sarah and you hear that person really challenging things that you've believed for a long time and that you've believed strongly for a long time, it's it's humbling. It's humbling to know that I don't have everything figured out. And then after after the humility, which is the hard part, comes the freedom. Because if I don't have to defend trickle-down economics, for example, <laughs> mm-hmm. then I'm able to say, all right, what can I learn about our modern economy and where it's going? And there's really interesting stuff out there to learn. What can I advocate for? Maybe I don't have to advocate. Maybe this isn't my issue mm. where I need to have a strong opinion that I'm beating the drum for all the time. It's very free to let go of the need to be right and to say, I'm just going to be a student of this moment in American history and try to contribute to it as productively as I can. Yeah. Sarah, somebody who's counseled me on this a lot is Bill Doherty. He's a he's a marriage counselor from the University of Minnesota, but he's involved with this Better Angels movement. Are, are you familiar with it? Yes. So right now, actually, he's in St. Louis uh, at a convention, at a Better Angels convention. He says once you let contempt and disdain enter anywhere into the interaction, whether it's at the beginning or it's somebody expresses an opinion and you just display this sense of contempt or disdain, basically the opportunity is gone and you're letting it be gone for the rush. You're letting it go missing for the rush of that sense of superiority. So – did you have to work on this the way the way Beth says she did and and just that the, the practice of it again and again was helpful? 
Um, let me be abundantly clear. I am still working on that. I often say self-righteousness <laughs> okay. is my favorite emotion. Um, but what I, I what I really came down to, so let me, I think that it's sometimes important to just be honest and pragmatic. I, like I said, it's my favorite emotion. I still like to feel self-righteous. Feels good, huh? But where I, yeah, it does. Let's be honest with ourselves. When you get that burning or you, you, you make the great point or you got the gotcha moment, it feels good. But the reality is, and this is what I just had to face openly and honestly, is it just doesn't work. You know, I, I tried for a solid decade in my 20s just sending that one Atlantic long read, and I was going to convince the person. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get the right statistics, <laughs> and I'm going to get the right article or the right TED Talk, and everything's going to change. And there's a part of me who still wants to believe that. But politics so often is about emotion. Not about, and it's about the stories we tell. It's not about, um, oh, I just don't have the whole entire statistical picture I need, and then I'll really shift everything, okay? And so learning that and really facing that openly and honestly and thinking, okay, do I want to feel good and feel right, or do I want to understand and make gains and make progress and feel like this conversation is going somewhere instead of just butting our heads against each other? And, you know, I often say, for better or for worse, whatever side of the spectrum you're on, we're in this together. Louisiana's not going anywhere, and neither is California. (laughs) And so we're in a relationship together as citizens. That's just the reality. And you're absolutely right. Instead of any sort of civility, we have contempt for one another. It's not just that I disagree with what you think the future of the country should look like. I think you want to destroy yeah, the country. exactly. And just like in a marriage, contempt is one of those four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? It's It means the relationship is in dangerous territory. And I think that is abundantly true. And I think what's so important of women and women of faith is that we have been taught that the solution to every situation and our role in intense conversations or in relationships that are in danger is to make everyone comfortable. And what we're saying is that the role of women and the role of women in faith is no longer to make people uncomfortable, but sometimes, or make people comfortable, but sometimes to make people uncomfortable. To state how you feel, no matter how many times your mama told you not to talk about politics or religion. To, to assert your values with love and compassion and kindness and say, no, this is important to me. Let me tell you why. Just like Beth said, like, it will make someone uncomfortable if you look at them in the face, especially if you've never done it before, and say, hey, my blood pressure is rising. I'm really angry about this, and I need to tell you that. That's a big thing for a lot of women. And so I think that understanding that we have a a role here, that we – there is – in a relationship that's in danger, a space to say, hey, we're in danger. (laughs) Something's wrong and we need to talk about it. This is the latest conversation in our Women of Faith series. And you can hear us developing this idea that receptive listening, really honoring someone with your attention is a spiritual act. This is something that Sarah Stewart Holland and Bess Silvers practice. They do it on their podcast, the Pantsuit Politics Podcast. I listen to it. And they also wrote a book about it with the title, I Think You're Wrong, But I'm Listening. Now, I don't know if you've been able to tell this. I I deliberately did not say where each woman comes at this politically. Beth from the right, Sarah from the left, and yet they engage in these conversations all the time with their podcast. And yet you can hear them saying, struggle with the self-righteousness, struggle with the, if you would only wake up, you'd know why I feel the way I feel, and you would agree with me too. 
So as we talk about this this morning, I'd like to know if you've had an experience with this in your life. When was the last time that you found the patience? And yes, it takes humility to truly listen to someone who doesn't share your political views, who was... I don't know, who who was insulting about you and the candidate that you support or about your views when you really honored them with attention. What happened? I mean, we heard our first caller say, I did this on, of all places, Facebook, and it helps and it works. So I'd like to know if you've had an experience with this. 800-242-2828, wherever you are here in the upper Midwest, 651-227-6000, and on Twitter, at Carrie NPR, where a listener says the hard part is sitting with an opinion opposite to one's own in because silence can imply agreement, hence the urge to refute in real time. To the phones to Angela in Rochester. Hi, Angela. Have you have you practiced this? What are you thinking about this? Yeah, so I'm actually a University of Minnesota Extension professor, and yeah. we recently launched a course that we're calling Empower You, Engage, Empowering Citizens to Engage Decision Makers. Very and good. Management. Oh, that's great. Right, and it, this came out of feedback from our Extension participants who were, were frustrated with, they, they didn't feel like their voice was getting heard, their issue of invasive species wasn't getting managed, and they didn't know how to engage with decision makers. And so um, it turns out that we now know from some national work that we've been doing in this area that um, there aren't many places people can learn the skills to have these tough conversations with people. And so it's been really interesting to dive deeply into the research around that to create a course targeting adults about how they can um, you know, frame their conversations, how they can understand persuasion, influence, power, how they can practice their listening and how they can frame and ask good questions so that they can create this space where people can can they can be heard, people can listen, and you can come to some agreement and place where conversations can happen in meaningful ways. I, I think I heard you say that one of the places that, that motivated you is the disagreement over something like invasive species, which is a very powerful uh, situation here in in Minnesota, right? People have very strong views about it. D- did I hear that right? You did. Yes, I do. Uh, most of a, a bunch of my work is in invasive species, and we have very very passionate volunteers here in Minnesota that have dedicated a lot of time and energy to managing invasive species. But they feel like at times that the research research managers or or the resource managers or the decision makers who allocate the funding and the resources um, don't aren't allocating them in a way that they think they should. And so how can they help engage in those conversations uh, to get to get that invasive species work done? And it turns out it, it gets to these conversations. How do you have meaningful conversations with decision makers? How can you create a sp- safe space? How can you listen and understand the process and the power and who does it? Where can you engage? And so um, it very much comes to these, you know, you're not being heard um, and how can you how can you help to create a space? And, and then we base our information in research. So what is the research around right. this, right? right? How can you do this um, respectfully in a way that is research-based to, to really enable these tough conversations at all different levels, from your neighbors to the adjacent landowners to the county commissioners to the state legislative to the, to the national level? How can you do that? I love this example, Angela. I'm so glad you heard the show and called Sarah, I'll bet you two have never talked about invasive species as a as a point of disagreement. But overall, does this make sense to you, what, what they're doing? Oh, absolutely. I think taking the idea that we are all struggling with these difficult conversations and applying it to a hyper-specific situation in which you can set it, articulate 
this is the research I'm aware of. This is why I feel so passionately about that and move forward from that example. You know, starting with abortion is not a great idea. Like <laughs> Starting with having conversations around invasive species and something that uh, that is really applicable in our, our day to day existence, depending on your role, I think is really, really important and a really great way to do that. Ian says on Twitter, uh, equanimous conversations can only exist in both directions to be productive in any way. I often try and switch challenged arguments with the other person I'm debating. Wow, I think that's tough. He says it's very difficult but can be productive. Beth, is this anything you you guys have ever tried or you think would be helpful? Well, I, th- I always think it's interesting to put myself in the other person's chair. The one thing that I want to challenge, especially since we're having this conversation as women of faith, I don't think that grace has to be equally provided in order for it to be necessary and in order for it to be impactful. So we tell people all the time, our book is not called Here's How to Make My Disagreeable Uncle Hear Me. <laughs> it is about working on ourselves. And we start with ourselves in the book. And it's a constant process of coming back to you. You don't have to receive grace to give it. You can come into these discussions with someone who is very hard-headed, who is not open to your perspective. And still, as you've been saying, Carrie, honor them with your attention. You can still bring the grace to the room, even when the person that you're talking with doesn't. And if you do that over time, you make progress. But it isn't going to happen in the first sit down. You know, we were just talking about this this morning before we got on the air among the the producing team. And I was thinking this is this can be so incremental that it feels like I'm doing a lot of the giving and I'm not really getting anything back for that, Beth. I mean, I see what you're saying that the grace doesn't have to be reciprocated immediately. You're not going to go, "Voila, I tried it once and look at the way this worked." That's, I mean, that's where the rubber really meets the road here. That's tough. It is tough. And I think that's another thing that you can just note. If you've had a few conversations, so you're making the investment to build the trust and the other person isn't coming along at all, it never hurts at some point to say that. I tell a story when we're in front of live audiences a lot about a conversation I was in about why women leave law firms. And as a woman who stopped practicing law, I have a particular expertise, I think, about that. Mm -hmm. But I was talking with an, an older partner and he spent two hours telling me his perspective on why women leave law firms. And I just listened for two hours. Wow. And when he finished, I said, thank you for sharing that with me. Are you interested in my perspective? And it was just a, a small way of saying, I'm here too, and I do need something in this conversation. I also need to be heard. But I did have to make the investment on the front end. And I'm not saying that women carry that load in every relationship. We got to make strategic decisions about when we want to do this and when we don't. But when we do decide that it's worth engaging with someone, it's worth being gracious to a point um, and then noting what we need after that. Wow, your patience is really exemplary. Did he want to hear your view and did did. he take it in? Well, I mean, he wasn't going to say no. That would have been really rude, right? And so he did listen to me. He did listen to me. And honestly, he listened in a much more open-hearted way than if I hadn't let him air That's his true. perspective fully. That's true. Call here from Cynthia. I would also add— Oh, go ahead, Sarah. Of course. Yeah, I would just add, too, that the gains of these conversations are not only in relationship to the other person. When you give grace— 
you learn about yourself. You learn about your own values. And even when you're listening, I'm sure Beth learned a lot in that two hours about herself and about his perspective. So it's it's not always transactional, right? Sometimes we give because we gain for ourselves and for our own perspectives and learning about our own values. I've learned so much about my own values and why certain issues are really important to me in our conversations. Call from Cynthia in Minneapolis. Hi, Cynthia. Thanks so much for waiting. Yeah, thanks. Um, I'm feeling like this whole conversation is taking place in a privileged bubble of white supremacy. Mm -hmm. Um, We have children locked up at the border. We have ICE agents raiding apartments, you know, blocks from where I live. We have white supremacist terror. We are on a slippery slope toward God knows where. And, you know, I, yeah, maybe I'm arrogant. But I'm thinking that there is that there are different ways that white people need to engage with what's going on at this time, rather than talking about civil discourse against people that disagree or whatever you're talking about. I mean, politics is maybe politics is fraught with emotion, but politics is real and people need to participate. I'm, I'm going to get off and I'll hear your response. Yeah. I'm basically appalled this conversation. Okay. Cynthia, I appreciate hearing your views on that. Beth, you've had a little bit of time to reflect on that. What do you say? Well, it is definitely not the first time we've heard that. And I appreciate what Cynthia has to say. We are not saying that these issues aren't important. We talk a lot on our podcast about how we think everybody has their own work to do. And I think sometimes in America, especially as white people, we are, Sarah and I are both white. We are both middle class. There are a lot of privilege privileged attributes to both of us. And we freely admit that. And so we try to think about, given that, what's my role here? I was really impacted by a conversation we had with Dr. David Camp, who is a black man. He's an expert on race relations. He teaches white people how to be allies um, on race. And part of what he said is, your job as a white person is to build relationships with other white people so that you can teach them about racial issues from a new perspective. He said, if we could just get more white people understanding that race and discrimination are still real issues in our country, then we're making progress. I think often we believe that if I'm just angry enough, I'm contributing. And you can be angry, and you should be angry. I'm angry about what's happening at the border too, Cynthia. And I think to myself, okay, what's my work on that? And my work is not to go down to the border and help with my body. I kind of wish it were sometimes. I think that would be easier. But instead, I think I am supposed to be talking to white people who are scared of illegal immigration and trying to help them understand my perspective about why I believe it's important to welcome people into our country from other nations where they're refugees. And so it might be your job to go down there and help. And if you are moved with that kind of passion to do it, awesome. If all of us focus on what we're here to do and what we can best contribute, then I think we make progress. And I do think there is a role for us to say, how do I build relationships with people who disagree with me so that more of us take positive action? Sarah? I think the other thing I want to make very clear is that our solution – that we're not really presenting one solution. We're not saying everything that ails America can be solved if we just have civil discourse. That is not something we're arguing. It's not something I believe. No, because you've we been have in politics. Real... I know you mm-hmm. believe in political change. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I just what I've come to realize is in a democracy when you have to get a certain majority to support your perspective, your policy, your position, 
then it can't just be about shaming them into it because shame is not a good motivator. And it's not just that we're trying to that we don't want to shame the other side. It's that so many people are completely disengaged from the process because of the tenor of our political conversations. And what's really hard for me that I've that I've had to face is that I believe that this country needs big systematic changes. I believe if if I could snap my fingers tomorrow and make some big changes, particularly to the Electoral College and at the border, I would do that. (laughs) Uh But that's not how it works. And we have to engage people first. We have to get all the people who've just completely checked out of politics because of the way we talk to one another and get them empowered into the process so that we can work towards that systematic change. That's not everybody's work, just like Beth said. But it is work that needs to be done, not because it's going to fix everything magically if we have civil discourse. It will not. It absolutely will not. But it's got to be a part of the process. Cynthia, I'm really glad you called as you listen, because I heard from Bridget on Twitter who said, yep, happy to hear Cynthia's comment. This is what I've been thinking. So this gave us an opportunity to talk about this. You may not be persuaded, but I'm glad we got a chance to address it to Lee in Minneapolis. Hi, Lee. Thank you so much for waiting. Hey. Hi. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I just wanted to say, uh, as a black man coming up from the cities, I married a woman from the rural area, mm-hmm. and it is very tough to change views, um, even of the children of my uh, brother and sister-in-laws. What makes it hard is that they're so set in their ways and understood. Most people are. Um, but to have kids telling you about politics, and, and that, that is good in a way, but to have them in these set, very, very um, small views, and to not hear your point mm. is, is a tough thing to do. Um, the only person I can actually talk to is my father-in-law, where we can sit down and have a conversation, and he will tell me his views, but he'll do it in with a respectful manner. So, Lee, uh, how, how old are these kids that, you know, where you're getting into these discussions with about politics? Uh, the first discussion I ever had, one of the kids was eight, and he was... Uh, very open about the way he felt about immigration and things like that. And I, I just couldn't believe it. I was just dumbfounded. Wow. Um, it, it really made me feel bad for our nation because as a nation, we just divide ourselves. You know, we don't sit down and talk um, as you're talking about, you know, with two different views and have a civil conversation about it. Uh, people get upset, you know, because they're not being heard. Well, if you listen, you can understand, you know, why that person's the way they are or, um, where they where their upbringing brought them, right, yeah. but there is room for change in everyone. So. so sounds like though you and your father in law have have practiced this. You figured out a way to do this. Yeah, it's about civility. It's just about being humane and understanding that people do come from different walks of life. You don't have to agree with everything, but you do have to be in the world with these people. So you have hmm. to come to some mutual ground or some mutual understanding, whether it be you know uh, politics or. You know, the birds and the bees. And and there's always the next family reunion looming, right? And you kind of dreading, this going to happen again? How do I how do I get prepared for this? I, I've kind of learned that, you know, I'll just, especially with the children, I'll stay away from the politics. But when one of the adults says something, I'll say, you know, hey, this is how I feel about that. Or mm-hmm. um, I have corrected some of the children on it. Like, hey, you need to get your facts straight before you say something about this. Um, and that helps out a little bit. But I do honestly just kind of sit back and listen and just think of how narrow minded people are sometimes, and including myself, you know. Yeah. Beth, a thought on this? 
Yeah, I really appreciate this room, Lee. And what I think about, I have an eight-year-old daughter. So when I think about talking to kids about politics, which I think is important, I always ask the question, what kind of people do we want to be? Because I think that's what an eight-year-old needs to know, not whether we tow the Democrat or Republican line on something, but what values do we bring into this situation? So kind of going back to immigration, you know, she and I talk a lot about what does our faith tell us about this and what kind of human beings do we want to be? What what adjectives do we want to use about ourselves? Do we want to be kind? Do we want to be generous? And um, I think that that is the best way to bring our kids into discussion. And again, I think that's why this kind of conversation matters, even when there are urgent, really important conversations going on around us, because those issues will continue to be for future generations. And we got to teach them a better way to manage them than we're managing them among ourselves. From Twitter, listener says, I struggle to engage and listen when I feel like the other person is being disrespectful towards me and my perspective. How do I get past that? Or is it even is it even worth listening in those situations? At what point do you draw a line and walk away. Sarah, I think we addressed this at the beginning where we said contempt and disdain will not get you there. What what do you do? You know, it where Lots you feel like you're breaths. not being re- respected. Yeah, go ahead. You said deep breaths. Lots of deep breaths. And look, it it depends on the relationship with the person, right? If this is a close family member, through which you're, you are truly playing the long game and you're going to have to engage over and over again. The answer is going to be different than if you've just walked up to a perfect stranger on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, which we do not recommend people do. Um, I think so the, the strength of the relationship, um, the topic you're talking about, how closely that is tied to your personal experience um, is a really important thing because, you know, it depends on the trust built in the relationship and how strong the emotions are in the moment. And if we're playing a long game, like we said at the beginning, we don't have to solve it this time. If it gets too hot, then excuse yourself knowing that we're going to try again because we love each other and we're going to keep listening to one another. That's the power of what we do on the podcast. I mean, we talk for several hours every week. People always say, well, how do you pay attention to the news? Don't you get depressed? No, because I'm processing it over and over again with this person who I love and I trust. And so... You know, when you know that there is going to be another conversation, it lowers the stakes. It lowers the heat. Now, that's not to say that there aren't some issues that are just always going to be hot. There are issues that we would never provide a platform on our podcast for that we're not going to hear out. But we still don't throw away the person who holds those positions. That's the difference, right? good. We don't throw away. We don't talk away, talk about you like you're human garbage. Like your position might be abhorrent, but you are still a human being deserving of basic dignity. Call here from Renita in Egan. Renita, I'm so glad you called because it sounds like you're working with better angels. Is that right? That is absolutely oh, right, Carrie. Tell me Thanks what it's been like. Yeah, it's been yes, better angels for me. My own personal experience has been truly a place of learning and growth, and 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 really, I think um, understanding from a different perspective of my own and, and to find where that common ground is. And, and, and Better Angels has been that place for me where um, my first introduction to Better Angels and meeting um, Bill Doherty has been fascinating, um, enough to the point where I decided to become a moderator, a trained moderator with oh. Better Angels. Oh, yes. <laughs> and for me, it's, it's coming from a place where at Better Angels, um, that first session I went to, on um, the first workshop, I was able to meet my Republican senator from my district where I live in Burnsville. Um, and from that 
place where we were able to have conversations, which again, primarily was around setting up safe spaces to have difficult conversations. And meeting my senator has been an eye-opening experience. Um, We are as polar opposite as it comes. Um, My senator is Republican and I'm a Democrat in every way possible. But we continue to meet and and talk about issues and talk about legislation and and each other's perspectives. And, And he welcomes that in a way where we aren't at loggerheads or hating each other for our own individual ideas and thoughts about things. And so for me, again, the biggest takeaway has been how can we find safe places to have difficult conversations? And when we do, Better Angels has offered that in a way where we can talk about immigration. We can talk about, you know, we can talk about law enforcement. We can talk about policing. We can talk about race. We just had a, a, our last meeting, monthly meeting, where race was the discussion and how do we, you know, find common ground and grow Better Angels in a way that engages other people um, who, you know, have different ideas and thought processes as we do, and then how do we find common ground? Again, the safe space to have those conversations and letting the other person know, I may not think like you. I may not understand always where your perspective is coming from, but I'm willing to listen. And where we can find that common ground has been amazing. Renita, who who is your Republican senator? I, I think they deserve... Uh... A, a more uh, add a boy for that. Who is it? Well, Republican uh, Senator and uh, uh, fifty six. That's Senator Dan Hall. Um, and that's so great. he and I have continued to work on building that relationship with each other. Again, I'm a Democrat. <laughs> He's a Republican, and <laughs> and we meet one on one. We have coffee and we talk. And he asks about my opinion on things. I ask for his opinion on things. And in a way that we don't come to the table just already with our guardrails up about saying you are you're red or I'm a blue and we can't agree. It's about where can we find that common ground to move things keep, forward. Keep up the good work. I'm so glad you called. Thank you. And by the way, I'll say this. I, th- I think I said this at the beginning that Bill Doherty is going to be on the show. I believe it's July 8th. And we're going to talk about the newest thing that Better Angels is pursuing, which is this idea of being depolarizing in your own political community. How can you work among your kindred spirits to be depolarizing? So, Sarah, Beth, this has been wonderful. I'm so glad this worked. We've been wanting to get you guys on the show for a long time. Thank you so much. And you too, keep up the good work. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Beth Silvers is creator and co-host of the Pantsuit Politics Podcast. Sarah Stewart-Holland, creator and co-host of the Pantsuit Politics Podcast. And their book is called, I Think You're Wrong, But I'm Listening. You just heard a recording of a live radio show on NPR News. To add your voice to discussion, you can call in at 800-242-2828 or tweet us at NPR. And if you miss us live, you'll find all our shows by subscribing to this podcast. You can send us your questions or comments by emailing talk at npr.org.